Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Thursdays here at the Commonwealth Club, we tape for my show and Progressive Voices Network with my co-host, John Zipper. So, John, thanks so much for being the brains of the show. I wouldn't call myself that, but it's always <laughs> great having you here on the Well, I say that because he actually hosts his own show. It's the week-to-week political roundtable talk, and he's the vice president here, or the boss. One of the vice presidents. <laughs> we have a gaggle of vice presidents. Yeah. Um, well, we have a special guest for you today, and I've wanted to talk to her for a really long time, but I'm glad that I've taken some time to to think about, you know, how or what questions I'll ask, and a lot has happened since the moment in which I said, wow, I really want to talk to this person. And, and that moment was when she gave a very tearful speech right before uh, the mayoral election here locally in San Francisco. Um, but let's welcome District 9 Supervisor Hillary Ronan. Hillary, welcome. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I had a very um, intense morning this morning. Um, I have a six-year-old daughter, Mayel. And when I was getting ready for work in the bathroom, she was in the kitchen playing her little guitar and said, Mom, mom, someone just walked into our house. So I ran to the kitchen and said, what do you mean someone walked into our house? She said, a man just walked into our house. And I, of course, freaked out because all that's in my head is Jamie Kloss. Have you been following that yeah. story? Which is the a mother's worst nightmare. And so I, I, I called out and I couldn't see or hear anyone. I grabbed her. I went into our, my bedroom and locked the door. And then I asked her, did you really see someone? You know, sometimes, you know, our imaginations are lively. And did you see a real man or do you think you imagined it? She's like, no, I saw a man. And so I called 911 and the police came and they had to break down our door. And oh, it was... It was one of those mornings and there was no one there. And so now I'm wondering either someone has my key and came into my house and I just didn't hear or see them or my daughter is having delusions or she has an incredible imagination and feels no guilt about the fact that we had five police officers and a fire engine at our house breaking down the door. And so that's that's been my morning. And, and I think it's just illustrative of juggling politics and motherhood <laughs> and, and, and media very, and the news and, and it's you know, challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a, a very cultural Asian household. And so I was going to add one more to your list of who, you know, your daughter could have seen. Yeah. I grew up with my mom, uh, basically telling us that there are spirits all around yeah. us. And so <laughs> whatever my ama- imaginations were at a young age, I would always say, well, that was, you know, my father's spirit or my grandmother. Yeah. And, Anyway, I, 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 I'm glad my okay. daughter has a sixth sense that yeah. I wasn't aware of. I, I'm just, my mind's been blown this morning. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. But the good news is we're getting a new door and a new lock. Good. And so we will be safe. And I have to say that as a frequent critic of the police department, they were absolutely amazing. And I just feel so grateful Um you know, and the, and, and the importance of government, thinking about the government shutdown on the federal level, the fact that we have, you know, a place to call during emergencies and they picked up immediately and walked me and talked me through it and kept me calm. And then that the police were right there and we were in, you know, 
in the bathroom and with the window open, talking to the officer, promising he'd keep us safe. And I was really, really terrified um, because she doesn't make up stories like this. And so it's this is not in character. And, and so I thought there was someone genu- genuinely in my house. Now I'm not so sure, but I, at, the, at the moment that I was barricaded in my bathroom and just the professionalism of, of the SFPD gave me the other side of, of the picture of um, how incredible these officers in the department can be. And, and as I said, someone is a frequent critic of the police department. It was, it was, you know, at least a good experience to have had that very incredibly positive experience this morning. Well, I'm glad you are, uh, you and daughter are okay for, thank you. Yeah, and you're here. Thank, thank you. you for being thank here. <laughs> um, and we'll dive into, you know, police and the mission slash Bernal Heights Portola district or in which you are supervisor of. Um, but, but I guess, you know, in my opening, I, I really would like to touch base with you and remembering that tearful speech yes. and that moment as San Franciscans, we, we had this, uh, you know, the, we had two things we had to do, which was choose a mayor, yes. but who the mayor would be. And then we came back to this big conversation of who owns San Francisco. Yes. We talked a lot about, um, I, I guess I won't bring up names, but you know, Corporate yeah, Ron Conway. Okay, sure. <laughs> and company. <laughs> Let's get back to, to that moment, because I think for a lot of us who are following on the media, it, yeah. it, we, we read what we read, we heard what we heard, and uh, what was really going on? Um, yeah. That, that's a question. Mm-hmm. That was one of the hardest... Um, things that that I've done in politics and uh, I could I could talk about that for for an hour but um, you know I was prior to becoming a supervisor two years ago I was a legislative aide for supervisor compost my predecessor so I had been able to watch uh, now mayor London breed on the board of supervisors for six years and um, I did not agree with a lot of her politics that I felt like despite her incredibly inspiring story and her charisma, all of which, you know, I, I continue to find incredibly per- impressive that it, when there were opportunities to fight for systemic change in her community, that she often sided with the rich and powerful and and not um, people uh, that were being oppressed, including African-American community. And that wasn't always true. Nobody, nobody has a perfect record. Nobody's, you know, everybody's complex and every issue is complex. But more often than not, um, that's what I saw. And so I was not supporting her for mayor. And I felt that if she... Um, was the interim mayor, then then it was going to be impossible for anyone to beat her. I mean, when you're a mayor, you have, you know, uh, tens of thousands of employees at your disposal. Um, you have the newspaper following every word that you say and putting you on the front page. Uh, again, the, she is an incredibly talented and charismatic woman, and so um, I and leader. And so I felt like it would be impossible. And I really, really wanted um, Jane Kim and Mark Leno to have a chance, um, and there to be an equal sort of playing field in in the battle for uh, the the mayorship. Um, knowing that it's probably whoever won has a leg up for the next 
next 10 years in the city. And what I felt we needed, and I still feel we, we need, was radical change. I feel, you know, almost like we need to turn the city upside down. That it has, uh, if we continue to go down the path that we've been going down, then we're not going to see many people of color or many working class people or many mini- middle class people um, in the city anymore. That we're going to have a work the workforce crisis that we already have because um, nobody but the super rich can can move here um, and, and can hang on here uh, is going to get worse. And that the things that brought me to San Francisco, because I'm not a native, um, the, the sort of uh, progressive and innovative and visionary accepting character of the city it, it is disappearing and I wanted to get it back. And I felt like if London Breed won the mayorship, that the chances of getting it back were much less than if Supervisor Jane Kim or former Senator Mark Leno won. And so I um, had to had to make that statement that day and say that I would vote for anybody but, but um, then Supervisor President Breed. And I felt like I had to tell the truth about that. You know, um, I felt like most of my colleagues stayed quiet. They didn't say a word uh, who felt the same as I did. Uh, the one person who did speak was Aaron Peskin, but he couched his remarks in uh, about procedure, you know, about about separation of powers and procedure, which were all true. And I agreed with what he had to say, but I also didn't feel like it was exactly telling people the truth. I felt like it was an excuse rather than the real reason um, why I, I knew he felt the same as me, that we had to vote for anybody but Mayor Breed. And I felt like we were we were going to uh, pull the rug from out from under so many people that believed in us and the progressive cause because we were we were kicking out from her seat an African American woman who had grown up very poor in as a native into the in the city in public housing and um, had reached great heights and that that was a, 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 a radical thing to do in many instances and it wouldn't I knew very well it wouldn't lo- be looked upon very kindly and um, but I felt like it was the right thing to do so I felt like I needed to to be very honest and and I think that will be the theme of this conversation today I still feel that way that we have to be honest with the public about what's going on why we're making the decisions we're making and and be more transparent and that's what I was trying to do that day I do regret crying because and that that is the other theme of today's conversation about being a woman in politics um, you know I was told afterwards you know cro- you know white woman with crocodile tears and I had felt like if I I hadn't cried and if I had just been stoic um, that that maybe that would have cut back a little of that criticism um, and I'm really going to try honestly not to cry anymore <laughs> even though I am a, an emotional person um, when I'm in um, the uh, in the board chamber speaking about decisions that I've made um, but I the other thing that I I very much want the point that I wanted to make that day and that I felt like was perverted by the media and by the the breed campaign which I understand it's it's politics and 
there's a lot of spin that happens in politics is that I said somehow that she was a puppet. And I absolutely never said that. I don't believe that London Breed is a puppet. She is a strong woman who knows who she is and what she's doing and makes every decision for herself. What I said was that the reason that Ron Conway and all of these wealthy political interests were supporting her is because she supports the policies that they want for the city. And I completely disagree with those policies. And that got twisted into, I called her a puppet of rich white men and then installed a rich white man. I was, I wanted to get into that. Yeah. Talk about the, the visuals of it. That was horrible, horrible visuals. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, well and, and the, the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, why not then put Jane Kim in? Because she didn't have the votes. If Jane Kim, I, I she was uh, nominated and I can't remember. I think she declined the nomination. Oh, really? Yeah, but she declined the nomination because she knew she didn't have the support, if that was true. Either or we voted and she didn't have the votes. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I'm going to be honest. I, I like Mike, Mark Farrell as a person. Um, I am very have very little in common with him in terms of his politics. And so he would have been my probably my last choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what to me, the choice that I was making was... This brief period of time, you know, four months compared to the next 10 years, right? And so I felt like what I wanted was nobody to have an advantage with the media, nobody had to have the advantage over deploying city resources towards campaign ends. That's what I wanted for the next 10 years of the history and the leadership of San Francisco. And in exchange, we had to put someone in there to keep the city running for four months. And that was the decision that I was making, knowing full well that the optics of that decision were as bad as optics can get, knowing that the ramifications of that were that I was going to look like a racist, um, look like a hypocrite, be called a racist, be called a, be ca- called a hypocrite, and knowing that it doesn't, ultimately it doesn't matter what people think or call me. What matters is that I'm doing the job to do what I believe is right for my constituents and for the history of San Francisco. And so I... I, I stood up and I, I told what I believe what was my truth in that situation and, and told very uh, forthright what I was doing and, you know, got a lot of flack for it, which I completely understand. I was ready for it. I knew what I was setting myself up for. I wasn't going in there blind um, and I'll probably get flack for it for the rest of my life. Go ahead, I, I'll, I'll be yeah, quick. Yeah. Knowing how it then ultimately turned out in the general election. Yeah. Would you have done the same thing? I would have done the same thing, yes. Um, because hindsight's twenty twenty, and um, you know, I I I think that uh, now Mayor Breed, uh, you know, used what happened to her in a very politically savvy way because she is politically savvy, and so are the people that worked for her. And I don't blame her for that. You know, it's politics; that's what you do. Um, and you know, I think, I think it was an uphill battle for her opponents because, um, you know, San Francisco wanted her to be the mayor and what they think that she was and is. Um, and, and, and so they elected her and she was elected fairly. And now it's my job to continue to do what's right for the city, but to respect that she was, fairly elected to her office of mayor and 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 I I give her that that absolute respect. 
Well, I was just going to say, I mean, we're going to get to the crying in just a little bit, because yeah. I cry a lot. And I don't yeah. think crying's bad, but, you know, uh, it shows how much of a... I, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> gonna talk about crying. But first, I mean, I don't think that that speech was wasted. I don't. I think no. that it, it did what it what you intended it to do because the race was very close. Yes, it was. Um, and so it, it it like you you know the intention was to give an even playing field. Yes. And she was elected. Yes. And then now you're supervisor and yes. she's mayor. Yes. And. A lot of, uh, you know, what's been going on with progressive politics is the it goes through the good, the bad, the ugly, and then it gets to a place where we all have to work together. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear your perspective of working together, getting th- healing from that, moving forward, yeah. and where your relationship might be now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, the there's not tension with myself and Mayor Breed when I see her or when we discuss anything. She She's fair forthright. Um, we did have some really tense and serious negotiations around the minimum compensation ordinance that I and Sandy Lee Fewer were pushing very hard that she disagreed with. Um, and when, you know, it became clear that we had the votes to pass that, the minimum compensation ordinance would give a raise to home care workers who care for the seniors and elderly and nonprofit workers who work on city contracts um, who are barely surviving in San Francisco and a workforce that we rely heavily on to care for for our senior and disabled residents, as well as homeless residents and and youth and all the incredible work that happens in the nonprofits in San Francisco. And uh, Sandy Lee Fewer and I were fighting for a raise um, for for these workers who are mostly immigrants, um, women of color, low-wage workers, uh, because they can't really hang on in the city. And the mayor was not ready to make that investment. And so it was it was a hard, it was a hard fought, you know, policy difference. And to Mayor Breed's absolute credit, um, she sat down with us, um, her and her staff, and seriously engaged in negotiations with us. And something I will be uh, forever grateful for, because sometimes, and in the past, mayors will sit down with you and pretend to negotiate when they really have no intentions of reaching a deal. And what I could say uh, is that that is not what she was doing. She was sitting down with us. We were having really deep, really difficult policy discussions about priorities for resources in the city. And we reached an incredible agreement that will give home care workers and nonprofit workers, well, home care workers, it's slightly different populations, um, a $3.75 raise over the next um, three years, uh, which is, is the biggest pay raise and, and largest um, salary of any home care workers anywhere in the country, which is something to be very proud of. Um, and that will give a $2 raise to nonprofit workers. And then we held hands, you know, not really held hands, but stood there together in a press conference and celebrated that together and really recognized each other's effort in that. So, you know, I think both of us have proven to the public and to my colleagues and to each other that we're mature enough to have policy disagreements despite our history and despite our personal tensions to have policy differences, to debate it out and, and, you know, where possible reach an agreement. So I, 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 Deeply appreciate that. Um, you know, having said that, you hear the rumors behind the scenes that, you know, she doesn't want me to be, you know, during the presidency fight, a president of the board, and that she doesn't like me. But 
kind of who cares it we don't need to be friends we need to be respectful to one another and to and to be able to have respectful debate and uh, I think both of us have done that and have proven we're capable of that John wasn't there a U.S. senator who said if you want a friend in politics get a dog exactly exactly <laughs> exactly but you do have friends in politics and you have allies in politics uh-huh. um, I, I'm not sure if this if you if I can maybe Perfect. go back but how and why did you get into politics? You used to be a lawyer. Yes. So why did you decide politics is a place to be to make changes that I want? Yes. Um, so um, I was a attorney and organizer with low-wage immigrant workers for uh, close to seven years at La Raza Centro Legal in the Mission District. And um, I would help workers, low-wage workers, get their wages back when they weren't paid correctly from their employers. And it was an endless battle. You know, we'd have case after case, we'd win case after case um, in, in the courts, but oftentimes we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to get the actual wages back. And it was very frustrating and it was sort of endless. I, I could do this for my entire life and we probably wouldn't make a dent in the issue. And so I um, ended up writing the first version of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, which later became state law under uh, former assembly member Tom Amiano. And through that process of writing a law so it actually worked for the workforce it was supposed to protect was an incredible experience. And from that, I decided, wow, writing policy and creating policy um, is somewhere where you can have a bigger impact. And, and when you know and work with and alongside the people that are impacted by that policy, it's uh, a profound experience. And so I applied for a job with David Campos and ended up um, getting that job and working with him for six and a half years and loving it. I absolutely loved being a legislative aide because you don't have to deal with as much with the dirty <laughs> politics. You don't have to fundraise. You don't have to run for office. You don't have to go to endless events. Um, but you get to work with the community creating incredible policy. And I'm a policy wonk, so I loved that job. And I would probably still be doing it today if there weren't term limits. But when David was termed out of office um, and we both him and I had approached so many people that we believed in and trusted, mostly Latino leaders, because this had traditionally, or since David, you know, felt like the Latino scene on the board of supervisors, <laughs> tried to recruit a bunch of the Latino leaders that, that, that we trusted and believed in and had worked with in the mission. We couldn't get any of them to run. And I had no intentions of running whatsoever. It had never been, you know, something I saw myself doing. It just wasn't my life goal or dream. And David and, and my, my colleague at the time, Nate Albee, kept saying, Hillary, you've got to run. You know, if we want to protect the work that we've done, you've got to do this. You've got to step up. You know everybody in the district. You've worked in this district for 10 years. You, you, you know how to get radical change done at City Hall. You've got to step up and do this. And it was a big decision for my family and I. Um, and we, we talked about it and decided, well, look, I'm going to be out of a job. I, um, you know, am always going to work in jobs that are difficult because when you fight for oppressed communities, it's, it's never easy. Right. And so that I, I knew whatever I'd do next would be something similar. Um, you know, my husband's a public defender and an immigrant rights attorney. And he, um, you know, it's, it's our family sort of 
role. We, we fight for justice as a family. Mm -hmm. And so we decided this was the best way for me to do it at, at the, at the time. And, and, um, and so I ran and here I am. <laughs> um, congratulations. Thank you. And, and welcome to the, well, I don't know, the, the dark abyss of, <laughs> of, of all of it. But, um, I want to get back. You mentioned it very briefly, the, uh, the board president yeah. situation. Yeah. And that was my other you know, big question of, yeah, yeah. How did that go? And you know, it, it, it between all the supervisors, right after the, uh, the election, uh, it was a great big win for the progressive, uh, the progressives or, yeah. you know, um, liberals, if you will. Yeah. And so uh, it just seemed like now's the time with all of the Me Too and women elected, you know, in um, office in general throughout the entire country. We should have a female uh, board, or board president of supervisors, but that didn't happen. No, it didn't. And it was and it was very disappointing. It was a very disappointing process. Um, you know, I think uh, a, a couple things about that. I do think if I were a man that I would be board president right now. I really do. It's my honest to God belief. I believe that sexism and misogyny um, were part of this entire process and it was, and it was brutal. Um, I also think that there's stylistic differences so that that's not just sexism and misogyny, that there were multiple forces uh, interacting at the same time. Um, I am someone that is brutally honest, clearly. <laughs> um, I am someone that has urgency to make radical change. Um, and I, I, I push hard when I'm fighting for, for something. I don't, I don't mince words. And, and if I could interrupt you, I mean, do you kind of feel you got the Alexandria, uh, Cortez, I mean, that treatment of without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I find myself in good company. Not only do I find myself in good company, I'm inspired by what's happening at, at the federal level. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon, um, I'm blanking on her last name at the moment. Talib. No, no, that's Rashida Talib. Oh, I'm sorry. Rashida Talib, Ayanna Presley. I mean, all of these, these incredible women who are unapologetic about feeling that society is failing the majority of people, that we are going in the vast wrong direction, that this unregulated unbridled capitalism has led us to a place of widening inequality and of, um, you know, uh, the worst healthcare system for the most, ex you know, expensive care in the world, uh, you know, very poor public education system, uh, the number of homeless on our streets rising every day, that, that everything really climate change out of control and, and, and many, um, you know, of our top leaders, including our president, not even accepting the science of it. I mean, we are just, we are, we are lost and we are going in the wrong direction. And, and again, these women, they have the urgency and they have, uh, and they, and they want to tell the truth and they want to shed light and transparency on what's going on. And I very much, um, you know, feel proud of being part of that movement that I, that is mostly being led by women, um, and, uh, in this country that I, th I think is nascent and new and exciting. Um, and that's how I act on the board of supervisors. And 
What was interesting about my colleagues is nobody questioned, are you a true progressive? Because my record speaks for itself. Um, nobody questioned the quality of my work. Nobody questioned my work ethic. Um, nobody questioned my competency. What they questioned, and this is where the misogyny and the sexism comes in, time and time again, was they criticized my personality. They said that I didn't have the temperament to lead the board, that I was too emotional, that I wasn't able to compromise, which by the way is bullshit. I just proved that I was able to compromise uh, with the MCO, one of the biggest wins we had at the board last year. Um, that by the way, was stalled for two years before Sandy Lee Fewer, another woman and myself got involved. So it, it, it just wasn't true. I also will say that I, I, I am a very nice person. I pride myself on it. You know, the quality that I'm teaching my daughter above and beyond everything else is you need to be kind and respectful to other people. Those are the two qualities, kindness and respectfulness to other people that are, I hold most dear. And it is how I treat everybody in my life. And so when they said, you know, characterized me and on the, on the, on, not on the flip side, together with being kind and respectful, I am tough and I know what, is, what I think is right and wrong and what I'm fighting for. And so I am firm and I am tough when I'm fighting, but that doesn't mean that I do so without kindness and respect. And so I, I, I just feel like I, my character was maligned as an excuse for not appointing me president. Um, and my colleagues ultimately chose a, a wonderful supervisor who, by the way, I, I, I respect and love very much, uh, President Yi. Um, so I don't feel like this is a disastrous result in any way, shape or form. They didn't appoint Mike Pence. Exactly. Right. I mean, Supervisor Yi is, an, is a wonderful human being, um, who I, I believe, uh, has incredible integrity and, um, is, is an excellent supervisor. So I, I really, it, this was not a disastrous outcome in any way, but it did, it did set a tone on the type of leadership that the majority of this board is looking for, which is not the, you know, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez brand of the Democratic Party right now. It's the, you know, more moderate Dems, you know, more calm, slow, incremental change. And, you know, I disagree. I disagree that that's the type of leadership that we need right now. I think we need, I think we need bold ideas um, that will make tremendous change rather quickly, you know, relatively speaking. And um, someone who has the, you know, the passion and the urgency to get that kind of change done. Um I'm losing my point. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, we have about 10 more minutes until we open up to our audience here for your questions. So um, get them ready. Start thinking about a question if you have one for Hillary. Um, there's so much that I want to talk about. <laughs> I know it won't be a hog. I mean, your your district, you know, the Mission, Bernal Heights, Portola, big, huge immigrant district um, and people of color and obviously Maybe now, you know, a little bit of mixture of high income, but definitely still low income to middle. Um, I took some time out. It's been a while since I have walked the mission in the general area, um, some time out on Monday to kind of just 
look at yeah. the changes and and so the developments are there they're happening it's it, you know so for you as supervisor of that district to protect your constituents the residents i mean the job's got to be tough uh, and at the same time more than likely unpopular mm-hmm. as the city wants to move to embrace you know the changes yes yes great question yes it's very difficult yeah. <laughs> um you know, what I'm always constantly trying to do is um, walk the line of allowing change and new people to come in without displacing the long-term residents who've been there and the culture and the history of the neighborhood that makes it the special neighborhood that it is, which is what is attracting so many people to it. Um, so, you know, the there has been 10,000 Latino um, individuals and families displaced from the mission in the past decade. Um, Most of that displacement has not been by choice. Most of it has been forced upon people because of rampant evictions and, um, and just uh, increases to rent that no one except the ultra rich could afford. And so how do we protect people who've lived for generations in that neighborhood and have such deep ties um, to the neighborhood that, that have created the cultural institutions, the nonprofits that serve um, people, uh, you know, that serve the incredible food and cuisine and make the music and art. And, you know, how do we keep all that while understanding that in any major city, there will always be change and there will always be new people coming in. Um, and that's that's a really hard balance to strike. And so what I'm always looking for with market rate developments that come into my district is can we get enough community benefits and affordable housing out of the project that it would be better than not having anything at all? That's that's the question that I'm constantly asking myself. And um, and I've you know mediated uh, a number of disputes that well where we've gotten really robust community benefits packages where I my answer to that question and and ultimately you know activists in the communities answer that question was yes this would be better than nothing at all um, and then there are other projects where that's not the case and. And what you quickly learn as a politician is you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. And it's kind of liberating, to be honest, because no matter (laughs) what you decide, you will be brutally criticized by a whole bunch of people. So you just have to do what you think is right. And you just have to constantly be pushing yourself to, to, to do your best to strike that right balance. And then we've tried to put in other protections in place, um, like creating the Caibente uh, Cuatro Latino Cultural District, which we're looking at expanding, um, creating a special use district to, to make it harder for the business owners to kick out small businesses and, and, and bring in new businesses that don't enhance the cultural district, um, that we have on the, on 24th street corridor. Um, and you know, I've done every single tenant 
protection law I can possibly think of within the limits of state state laws. And I'm constantly fighting for revenue for more affordable housing projects, um, which I we welcome into the Mission District. We want every 100% affordable project in the city. Please come to the Mission. We want you. Um, you know the whole the whole notion, this whole debate between nimbyism and yimbyism. Um, I just find it so false because it, it doesn't work in the Mission. The Mission saying, bring all your poor and disfranchised and homeless to us. We'll take the supportive housing. We'll take the navigation centers. We'll take the affordable housing. We just don't want the luxury. We don't want more luxury housing in our neighborhood. We want to maintain the working class feel and 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 um, character of our community. That's the least NIMBY thing that's going on anywhere in the region, right? Um, but when, when they say no to luxury housing, it has a very different feel than, you know, on the peninsula where they don't want anybody coming into their community because they want to preserve their, their, you know, perfect communities, right? That's not what's happening in the mission. And and we have to understand that difference and provide some allowance for it. But it's not what I hear when, when I challenge a, a project, um, uh, you know, based on the law as I see it. Um, I am criticized as being NIMBY and not wanting to build housing, which could not be further from the truth. Um, it's it's too simplistic. And, and that's what drives me crazy about the YIMBYs is that they're just too simplistic. I wanted to ask you about, since talking about women in leadership, political leadership, um, I wanted to ask you probably about the most powerful woman in the country right now who yes. has the president held at the <laughs> um, She's a progressive who yeah. is also known as being a very pragmatic person who understands the lines of power. Yes. Give us your, the political insiders. What's your take on her? Uh, I love her. Um, I love her. And n no, noting that we have a lot of differences. Mm -hmm. You know, if I had to compare myself to anyone and, you know, or, or tell you who my biggest idols are right now in, in federal politics, it's Rashida Tlaib and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the, the democratic socialists, basically. I don't know if, if, if um, Elizabeth would call herself one, but Bernie has, and so have, have the rest of them. It's, it's people who think that housing and food and education um, and access to power should be human rights. They shouldn't be something that we're defining and that we have the wealth in this nation to, to take care of everyone and meet their basic needs. And, and I believe that. I believe that with everything in me and, and healthcare as well. We're going in the wrong direction. Um, having said that, Nancy Pelosi has just a career that's extraordinary. If I have to deal with sexism and misogyny in, you know, 2019 in San Francisco, I can't even imagine what this woman has fought and overcome in her lifetime. She's a trailblazer. Um, she, she made it possible for me to be so honest and forthright and bold, you know, as I am. And, and, and she is bold. I mean, that letter, you know, uh, that sassy letter to uh, Trump disinviting him to the State of the Union, I was jumping for joy. You know, that was, that was, and, and I think she's inspired by the same women I'm inspired by. Honestly, it, it was in that vein. Um, but I, I just, I just have tremendous respect for her. Now, you know, was her vote on the Iraq war something I agree with? No. Did it make me very angry? Yeah. 
yes. Um, you know, does do some of the corporate backers, you know, uh, of her uh, make me uncomfortable? Absolutely. Um, you know, do I think she's the most progressive person in Congress? No, but um, she's she's someone that I deeply respect. The last thing I'll say about Nancy Pelosi is that I've been at several events with her. And I've been at several events with many politicians and the way that um, the speaker relates with human beings and the way she talks to normal residents in our, in our community is with such care and genuine attention um, and love. And it's notable. It, it's not the like, let me get out of this conversation as quickly as I can like many politicians, it's, it's, she asks real questions and she really listens and asks follow-up questions. She, again, her kindness and respect of other people are, are profound and, and I, I deeply admire her. That really leads me to, you know, cause when we talk about speaker Pelosi and before she was chosen as speaker and there's a lot of talk, um, you know, especially with, Younger folks of, okay, get rid of the old guard, bring in new people, we need new people, we need more radical voices. And, you know, what's happening here in San Francisco, and this is my personal opinion and perspective, uh, it just feels like we're we're so, like we're fractured, like we're just, you know, breaking ourselves over a, a purity test or, or who's, you know, moderate, who's radical, who's more progressive, and... At what point do we kind of look at it, our, ourselves in the mirror and then, you know, going back to the whole honesty conversation and, and even with our cohorts, whether um, they look different from us, they're a different gender, and, and, and then all this, all these identities mixed into it, and then you want to support all of the, the marginalized, and it gets so rough. The mm -hmm. conver conversation gets so rough and tough. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree. Um, there there is a lot of fractured relationships in all, you know, uh, in all politics. But for me, uh, you know, the presidency fight was hard for me because it's not, it's the worst part of politics, right? You're advocating for yourself. You feel like people that you've worked so hard to support and said they were agreed with your way of seeing in the, you, the world stab you in the back and you get so disappointed and all of that stuff. But it's not why I'm excited about the work that I'm doing. The, the, what, fighting for and winning the MCO and a $3.75 raise for poverty-stricken home care workers is the reason I'm in politics. And so, uh, you know, I'm so, I, I feel like when you focus on the issues, mm. that that's where, where you draw people out and who they really are. I could care less about the progressive and moderate uh, labels. At the, I, I just think they're a bit something of the past and um, we're stuck on them here in San Francisco, but I just, they don't work anymore. They're not, they're not, it's not the same landscape that it was during the Chris Daly, Matt Gonzalez, Ross Mercurimi, Aaron Peskin days. We're, we're, we're in a different time now. And I often have more in common on the issues with, uh, you know, Shimon Walton, who many people call a moderate. I don't think he's a moderate, but I think he's a progressive, but you know, who knows is on that side of the, of the aisle. Um, I have a lot more in common with Shimon Walton with what I'm fighting for than with Raphael Mandelman, who is a supposed progressive, who I think is actually a moderate. So <laughs> I, you know, it's just, it's absurd. And, and, and I don't, that's not how I work. I work on 
you know, people who I believe that I can trust and have integrity, and then ultimately on debating policy and issues. And I think that's how we all have to start changing the way that we think about sort of teams in, in politics. Yeah, and my question was really, you know, the, the Democratic Party is the new Democratic Party. I mean, are we going to get to a place where we call ourselves a Democratic Party or, you know, we get, we're going to go into these um, sub identities and things. But but I think that you're right. The young voices, the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, they might kind of be changing opinions and attitudes. I mean, she kind of uh, uh, slayed that. That's a millennial word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <sl> <laughs> Um, who was it? Joe Lieberman, um, yeah. you know, and his who criticism. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and, 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 and saying that uh, she was more destructive for the democratic party, which than, is hilarious uh, yeah. from a guy who left the democratic. Party. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, uh, again, misogyny, anyway. misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> it's now time for your questions. And so I think we have a roaming mic. Uh, John has the mic. So this is a taping, um, speak into the mic and yeah, we'll start with Pat down to brass tacks. About Pacific Gas and Electric, yes, I'm really glad to see that you are supportive of public ownership. Yes. yes. Can it be done? Yes. And will it be done? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. So um, just to catch everybody up in case um, not everyone's on the same page as Pat and, and myself. Um, so we have a program in San Francisco called Clean Power SF, where the PUC runs a, a utility that provides 100% clean and energy to its customers. Um, it, we, we're, there's clean energy, which is, you know, uh, no GHG emissions and and that don't come from fossil fuels. And then there's renewable energy, which is the best kind of energy, which is wind and solar um, and takes no, you know, uh, uh, does no destruction to the environment while it powers our needs. Um, so we want Clean Power SF to move to 100% renewable energy and have enough of a build out in San Francisco where we have enough solar and wind power that we can provide for all of our customer needs. Um, P we, because of Clean Power SF, our competition to PG&E, we uh, serve customers instead of PG&E here in San Francisco. We preserve, we we provide um, clean energy, and and it, it, when you're a super green customer, 100% renewable energy to all of our city municipal buildings. Um, to many buildings that have a lot of city investment, like 100% affordable housing complexes, and then you know to upwards of 300,000 residents, and we're climbing, uh, you know, and eventually get to all 800,000 of us. Um, so that's the great news. Now, PG&E has not liked Clean Power SF and has not liked San Francisco because we're competition, and so what they have been doing increasingly, which is pissed me off and pissed the entire city off, all of my colleagues, is they have been holding up our critical projects um, like uh, Garfield Pool, like um, a Randall Museum, like our, a, a new police station, like several affordable housing pro projects, like a navigation center in the dog patch. By creating these ridiculous infrastructure requirements for power that aren't needed in any project of similar size anywhere in the country in order to punish us for providing a clean energy alternative. And it has been basically blackmail. Um, and it has been really angering all of us in the city government. 
Then fast forward to uh, the horrendous tragedy of the uh, of the Butte County fires. Um, and fast forward to a couple days ago when PG&E uh, gave notice that they will be declaring bankruptcy. I believe that we have to take advantage of this unbelievable moment in history that from tragedy uh, arose an opportunity to take over the transmission of energy. So we produce the energy, but we are requ- we are dependent upon PG&E to distribute it to customers. What I want to do, and, um, and I'm partnering with Supervisor Peskin on this, which is funny considering he fought my presidency tooth and nail. Um, I'm working with him and he agrees on this to take over the transmission lines so that we are completely divorced from PG&E. We no longer have to be blackmailed by them. We can advance our our provision of 100% renewable energy to our customers and provide a safe, reliable, cost-effective, safe product to our residents without having a profit motive as our end motive. PG&E, we know, is beholden to their shareholders, wants to make profits, has, you know, billion, you know, million dollar salaries for their executives. Um, That would not happen in a utility run by the city of San Francisco. Uh, The top salary in the city, which is high, we know, but it's $300,000. It's not $5 million, which is what the top salary is at PG&E. And they're, again, trying to suck every... of every bit of profit out of operating this utility instead of worrying about the safety of their customers. And we've seen the impact of that San Bruno explosion, the the wildfires every season now. That would not, again, be a motive if San Francisco was operating utility. Our top motive would be safety, reliability, cost effectiveness. And so I believe we should be running and taking over the provision of this utility. And this is something that Aaron Peskin and I are actively pushing for and engaged in right now at City Hall. And I am optimistic that we can get it done. It's the type, again, of bold, urgent vision that we need. And, and, and not only because it's the cost-effective right thing to do in terms of providing a reliable service, but this is ultimately about climate change. Um, that you know, uh, we are we have like twelve years left. What the scientists say before we're going to have, you know, very very scary impact on the environment that's going to cause a lot of deaths. We have to be acting with you know, to change the way that we operate as a species on this planet radically. And we aren't moving fast enough. And the biggest program that we have in San Francisco that impacts climate change is Clean Power SF. We need to be acting urgently to grow that program as large as we can, to grow that build out, to get more wind and solar so that our impact on the environment and our and our footprint is, is, is much smaller. And this is the best way to do it. And I'm hoping that I can convince my colleagues and, and the mayor of the same thing. Of course, you know, uh, this is clear as day to Supervisor Peskin and I. It's an opportunity that we'd be fools not to take. Um, but we have a lot of work to, to do to convince Get, convince our colleagues, and I hope you'll all help us do that. Mm. I'll let me go back here first. Hi, my name is Emma. I'm a constituent in your district, um, and I'm really happy to be here. I'm also an, a sexual assault activist, awesome. and I was wondering if you had any updates about SHARP, because I was so excited when that was initiated and passed last year, and yes. from you. 
Yes, thank you so much, Emma. Um, so last year, um, aside from the MCO, probably the most significant piece of legislation that I worked on and passed uh, together with um, a group of survivors of sexual assault and rape um, was creating an Office of Sexual Harassment and Assault Prevention in the city and county of San Francisco. We had a series of hearings. I, I had um, a number of women approach me who had been raped um, and had gone to General Hospital to get a rape kit and had gone to the police and the DA to get accountability and all along the way had been treated uh, horribly. Um, had been blamed for their rape, had been uh, not believed, had, and again, once again, this is in 2019 in San Francisco. It's mind-boggling. Um, and it was stories that were just absurd that you know things you that you would imagine having heard in in the, in the 50s and 60s but were I was perhaps naive shocked to learn that that was still the embedded thinking again in our police department and our DA's office and even at General Hospital and so um, after holding a series of hearings where tons of advocates and 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 survivors came and testified about their abysmal experiences um, dealing with the city we decided that we needed a new department where uh survivors could go when they were receiving this type of treatment when they were not given the respect or taken seriously by departments and they'd have an advocate that could be with them every step of the way, demanding that treatment, documenting them what was happening, finding out trends um, in ways that we're just, we're not on the front front lines and, and using the most trauma-informed and up-to-date practices in dealing with sexual assault so that we could then uh, make those changes, policy changes from the inside. So that legislation went into effect at the end of last year. Um, and we are right now, it's, it's housed in the Human Rights Commission. And we are on the second round of interviews right now for the director of that office. Once the director is hired, there's going to be three positions in their office, a director, um, someone who takes, receives the complaints, and someone who works on the, on the policy changes altogether. Um, the director will be able to hire um, the other two staff, and then we're going to be up and running. And we already have uh, many advocates who are ready to file a complaint and start Start investigating and figuring out what type of changes we need to be making in our city government um, so that we are providing the the most the best care and the best services uh, to survivors of sexual assault. Well, we have a question here. Yeah, hi, um, my name is April Martin Chartran, and that's C H A R T R A N D, not Chartran, <laughs> like so many people say. Um, I have been in the Bay Area since 1980. I'm 61 years old, just graduated graduate school. And as I have traversed the world of the Mission District, which was my number one stomping ground when I got here, because I come from a Spanish-speaking uh, Latina background yeah. um, in Santa Barbara. So that was my home body. Yeah. The cholos, lowriders, the Friday night up and down the street thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. My heart is broken. Yeah. My heart is so broken mm -hmm. because... I don't see a world where people are coming together. Mm -hmm. I see white folks over here. Mm -hmm. I see people of color barely struggling mm -hmm. to get their 24th Street rent paid. Mm -hmm. I see mm -hmm. people of privilege, dynamic difference, and education mm -hmm. on levels on par to people like myself. Mm -hmm. 
Even mm-hmm. though I have a master's degree, I still am a woman in poverty here. Mm-hmm. What broke my heart is I went down 24th Street and the art, I think Galeriza, mm-hmm. uh, whatever Galeria it is, de la Rosa. is gone. I know. I'm a, a national award winning artist. <sighs> that place was my refuge. I found so much about Latinos in Mexico from that artwork yes. there. Oh my God. What are you going to do about this? Even yes. you have Cali 24. Yes. I see, based on Boom Goes the Sound of Eviction, a movie, a documentary. You can see on free on YouTube. Boom mm-hmm. Goes the Sound of Eviction. Have all this stuff started in the 90s. Yeah. Willie Brown, yes. Democratic. Yes. Jordan, Democratic. Yes. yes. So Democratic doesn't mean anything when you have the same policies yes. being put forth that got us here today. Yes. Displacement, lack of community, mental health issues. Because you don't have community anymore. Yes. That's how I feel as a woman of color now. I live in another gentrified, colonized space. I call the new Jim Crow of San Francisco. People don't want to hear what I have to say, but that's what's happening. I feel like a stranger. All my people along the Visadero Corridor are gone. Mm -hmm. My sense of community Mm -hmm. is gone. Mm -hmm. I walk in the shops, they follow me around. Mm -hmm. So could you please tell me, what is happening with 24th Street when we're losing cultural markers of what keeps us whole here? Yes. Please tell me what you're going to do. Yes, yes. Thank you for that um, beautiful description of the reality of what's happening on the street and the difficult uh, situation that we're dealing with. Um, Galeria de la Raza was one of my biggest disappointments and uh, heartbreaks this year as well. Um, We negotiated hard with the landlord and he was unwilling to budge. Uh, Galeria was incredibly brave during the process, was able to bend so much. Um, This, by the way, Galeria de la Raza is the premier Chicano gallery in the entire nation. It's one of the first and oldest, and it is producing sort of the most cutting edge, innovative uh, Latino art in the country. And so losing Galeria de la Raza, which was one of the the sort of anchor agencies that make Guy 24 what it is, um, uh, was basically evicted, was force, forcefully evicted. The good news is they have a new spot on Valencia Street. So it's it's heartbreaking, but they're still in the mission, which is really important to me. The other good news is that we just landmarked that building um, as a historical site um, yesterday at the Historic Preservation Commission, or we just initiated the process to do that, which means that that landlord is going to have to only allow another gallery in there and won't be able to profit through the moon off kicking out Galeria de la Raza. And that is an important matter of justice for me and also an, Im- an important matter of recognizing the historical um, importance of that site. Uh, and you described it way better than I ever will be able to. Um, and then f- uh, fourth, we the Valencia Street site is a, a temporary site. We are building a permanent um, site on 16th Street, which isn't Calle 24, but it is another important corridor of activity in the Latino community and in communities of color in the Mission District um, that is going to be much more vibrant and and much stronger because Galeria will be there. That project is going to break ground soon. 
Galeria will be the, the, the storefront. And then on top of that, we're going to have hundreds of units of affordable housing, so which you should apply for. <laughs> Please apply for it um, because we do have, and, 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 and uh, to Mayor Breed's credit, her, the favorite piece of legislation that she ever worked on for me, um, one that I agreed with 100% was the neighborhood preference legislation, which allows um, communities that have been uh, d you know, displaced and kicked out uh, to have preference when new affordable housing comes online for those units of affordable housing. Uh, so thank you, Mary Breen, for that piece of legislation. That means someone who has a tie um, and has been kicked out of the Mission District has a real chance in that lottery of getting those new units that are coming online. Um, so there is good news in the future of Galeria de la Raza, but we weren't able to stop its eviction on 24th Street, and that was a blow to all of us. And, um, you know, what I'm continuing to doing, you know, thank you to the voters for uh, passing Proposition F on the ba ballot, which is uh, created a set aside for cultural districts like Calle 24 to have access to funds every year, which they can use to try to help save spaces like Galeria de la Raza. We didn't have it in time to save Galeria, but hopefully for the next time that this happens, for one of those, you know, it critically important organizations and Calle 24 El Tecolote, Presida Eyes, um, MEPI, uh, Acción Latina, you know, there's still many cultural assets to protect and Calle Beto Cuatro that we're going to be even more ready with resources next time around. Um, so, you know, creating the cultural district legislation, printing Pop F on the ballot, uh, you know, fighting for the legacy business uh, registry legislation. This has been all the ways that I've tried within my power to protect these small cultural institutions and small businesses that are so important to us in San Francisco. Uh, the problem is we need commercial rent control and that's a statewide effort. Uh, that nobody has has dared touch yet so far, but that's what we ultimately need. And there's the bell. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and so I hope all that uh, you wanted to ask, you got your questions asked, but I'm pretty sure um, you can get a hold of Hillary. Yes, somewhere, please somehow. contact me anytime. Um, Hillary.ronan at sfgov.org. I want to thank everyone for being here at the Commonwealth Club and for participating during the Michelle Miao Show, John Zipper and the Commonwealth Club. Of course, our wonderful guest, Supervisor Hillary Ronan. Um, Supervisor, I do really want to extend heartfelt thanks. I, I encourage you to cry. I think crying is really healing. But I understand, you know, it's like a lion's den in there at City Hall and yes. whatever. Yes. Uh, but I appreciate I might not be able to help it because <laughs> I'm a crier, but I'm going to try not to cry in City Hall yeah. or in, yeah. in, in, in front of cameras anymore. <laughs> but I appreciate your tenacity and your willingness to, to do good for our communities and our cities. So thank you thank for your you. service. Thank you so much. Thank you for this great show. We're here every Thursday at noon. If you can make it, check the listings at commonwealthclub.org. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.